You guys can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount this morning, one of the most famous sermons, arguably the most famous ever delivered by Jesus. It's Matthew 5 through 7. Back in the 80s, there was a professor at A&M named Virginia Owen. She was an English prof, and she gave her students a composition assignment to read the Sermon on the Mount and write a response essay to it. Now, Texas A&M, we're in the Bible Belt, and so she assumed that most of the essays would be very positive in their interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, but she was, she was wrong. She got these essays back from students, and one student read the Sermon on the Mount and concluded, in my opinion, religion is one big hoax. That was their takeaway from the Sermon on the Mount. Another student concluded, I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. A third student concluded, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery, that is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Now, you would assume that Virginia would be discouraged by these com- comments, but it was actually quite the opposite. She, she gets essay after essay from these students reading the Sermon on the Mount for the first time and hating it. And here was her response. This, she says, was the real thing. A pristine response to the gospel, unfiltered through two millennia of cultural haze. I find it strangely heartening that the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. And that leads us to the first thing you should know about the Sermon on the Mount. It was designed to offend you. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount 2,000 years ago, he designed this sermon to offend everyone who heard it. Now, you read Matthew 5 through 7, and maybe you don't feel any offense because you've been reading the Sermon on the Mount since you were a little kid. And you ask yourself, well, what else would Jesus say? Of course he's going to say this. This is normal. Well, you need to step back a moment. And so this morning, we're going to step back a moment, and we're going to try to see how not normal the Sermon on the Mount is. I'm going to try to help you recover some of that shock and awe that was designed into this sermon. I want to help you to to feel the offensiveness of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 through 7. So we're going to walk through the Sermon on the Mount today, chapters 5 through 7. We're not going to read it all. We will actually come back to this sermon multiple times throughout the semester. I'm just going to cover the high points and give you a big overview of the whole sermon so that you can recover some of that offense that Jesus designed into it. So when you read Matthew 5 through 7, most important thing is that you would get the big idea right. Any passage of scripture you want to understand, get the big idea right. So what is the big idea of the Sermon on the Mount? Very simple. Jesus wants you to understand the bad news is worse than you imagined. It's kind of a depressing summary statement, isn't it? (laughs) It's going to be a fun morning here at Grace Bible Church. When I put this together and I thought, wow, that's my big idea. Holy cow. I was reminded, I don't know if you remember when the original Alien movie came out and they had movie posters. You remember the tagline for that movie? Alien. In space, no one can hear you scream. Good Lord, that's that's a beat down. Who wants to see a movie like that? It's terrifying. Well, that's a Sermon on the Mount. The tagline of the movie of the Sermon on the Mount is, it's so much worse than you imagined. 
Jesus wants you to see how bad the bad news really is. So let's go right into the darkness. Now, here in chapter 5, he begins with the Beatitudes, which I'm going to save for next week. I want to give a whole sermon to those. So we'll study those next week. Let's pick it up in the next verse, verse 13, when the Beatitudes end. Jesus says, he's speaking to the nation of Israel, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? And it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The nation of Israel was called by God to be salt to the world. What does that mean to be salt? It means that they were to flavor the world with God's righteousness. They were to live such holy, good, loving, righteous lives that the world would taste the goodness of God, but, but they didn't. Israel as a nation failed. They lived like the rest of the world. That's why God judged them with exile and with years and years of oppression. And so later in verse 17, Jesus calls them back to the law. It's time to be salt again. It's time to obey the law again. Verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus calls the nation back to the law. Whoever teaches and obeys the commandments of the law will be called great in the kingdom of God. So he's calling them to return to the law. We talked about that last week. That's the idea of repent in the gospels. You need to turn back to obeying the Mosaic law. But here's the problem. There was a large chunk of the Jewish population who thought they were already obeying the law. That's the Pharisees. I need to give you a little bit of background on Jesus' opponents in the Gospel of Matthew. The Pharisees, they're also called scribes or lawyers in the New Testament because they were experts in Scripture. And they were the most influential religious party in the first century in Israel. Everyone in the nation of Israel looked up to the Pharisees as the, the model of righteousness. Do you want to know how to enter the kingdom of God? Well, follow the Pharisees. They're the righteous ones we all look up to. And the Pharisees agreed with that assessment. They actually believed they were quite righteous. Thank you very much. The the Pharisees thought that they were doing a great job in God's eyes. You actually see that in Paul. Before he trusted in Jesus, he was a Pharisee. And here's what he says about his life before Jesus, his life as a Pharisee. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. How can you say that? We're humans. We we, we make mistakes. We fall short. How can you say that you're blameless compared to the law? Well, very simple. The Pharisees reduced all of God's law to a list of a few hundred outward commands that you could actually keep if you had enough time and attention and a little bit of self-sacrifice. 
So the Pharisees, they boiled all of the law, this huge thing in the Old Testament, down to a list of a few hundred do's and don'ts. Things like don't kill anyone, don't lie to people, don't go steal stuff, tithe your produce to the Lord, don't carry wood on the Sabbath. They had all of these commands, these regulations. And if you accidentally broke one of God's regulations, they had a a very elaborate sacrificial system. Just go perform this elaborate sacrifice and you'll be pure again and righteous again. And so it was really hard to keep that long list of hundreds of do's and don'ts and all of those sacrifices, but you could do it, especially if you were rich. Because if you're rich, you don't have to work. So you could spend all day, every day, keeping the list of commands. That's the Pharisees. They were wealthy. They had enough money not to worry about working like all of us. They could keep the list. And so these men kept this list of hundreds of outward commands and all of the elaborate sacrifices. And the result was all of this devotion led them to believe they were righteous through their works. Self-righteousness, we call it. They were self-made men in the eyes of God. They had earned their way into the kingdom of God. They believed that they were righteous. So the big idea for the Pharisees, the law was good news because it was their way into the kingdom of God. Jesus disagrees. Jesus has a very different message for the Pharisees. And so in this passage, Jesus is actually about to go to war with the Pharisees to show the Pharisees and the entire nation of Israel just how wrong they were. So let's look at Jesus throwing the gauntlet down to the Pharisees. Look at verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You probably haven't ever read that and realized how offensive and radical that verse was in the original context. Jesus just dropped a nuclear bomb in Israel. He turned their entire society upside down. He just threw their most righteous men under the bus. Absolutely shocking. And so Jesus is going to spend the rest of the Sermon on the Mount proving this. You want to see just how far short the Pharisees fall compared to God. Let me show you how empty their self-righteousness is. So look at the next verse. He's going to prove how empty self-righteousness is. Verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother you good for nothing shall be guilty before the supreme court and whoever says you you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now first notice what Jesus is doing here. You have heard it said, and then he quotes the Mosaic law, but I say to you, this is called the Sermon on the Mount. That is a misleading title. This isn't a sermon. This isn't preacher speak. This is king speak. This is the king revealing the law. If I ever get up on stage and do this, it's time to fire me. Power has gone to my head. Preachers don't get to say this. This is kings getting to say this. So Jesus reveals the law to the nation of Israel. And what Jesus reveals to them, the big idea that he's trying to get them to understand, is that actions aren't enough. 
Your words and your thoughts are as important as your actions. And so he helps them understand. Okay, Pharisees, you think that you have fulfilled God's command. You shall not murder just because you literally have not murdered anyone. Well, guess what? Thoughts about someone, words that are mean about someone, that makes you just as guilty as if you would have literally killed them. What an incredibly high standard Jesus is setting. It's not enough just not to kill someone if you are mean to someone, if you harbor hatred towards someone, if you speak ill of someone. In God's eyes, you are just as guilty as a murderer. Now, those two sins have different consequences. You're not going to go to jail if you harbor hatred towards someone. You will if you murder them. But in God's eyes, they make you equally guilty. Well, who hasn't harbored ill towards someone? I had a younger brother growing up. I harbored ill towards him all the time. I called him bad names. I sent my brother to the hospital twice when we were growing up. I'm guilty. This is bad news, but it gets worse. Look a little bit later. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Under the Mosaic law, adultery was a capital offense, meaning that the right punishment was to stone you when you committed it. So let's just state the obvious here. Every man in this room deserves to be stoned. Probably just for your thoughts this morning. Guys, most of us deserve to be stoned every day because we fail this all the time. To just think a lustful thought towards a woman makes us as guilty in God's eyes as to commit adultery with her. That's absurd. That's why the student at the beginning that we quoted, he looked at that command and said, that's extreme. That's ridiculous. Yes, it is extreme. Jesus is setting the bar impossibly high. It's not enough just to do the right thing. You have to say the right thing and think the right thing all the time or you are guilty, so guilty that you deserve hell. This is really bad news, but it just gets worse. Let's keep going. Look at verse 43. Told you it's bad news this morning. 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Seriously, I gotta, I gotta love my enemies. I gotta love and pray for those who persecute me. I mean, maybe I can do that some of the time, but Jesus is saying I gotta do that all the time. I gotta do that consistently. That's impossible. This is bad news, but it gets worse. Look at the end of the chapter. This is the conclusion of it all. Therefore, Jesus says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How perfect is God? Perfect in every way. Every thought, every attitude, every word, everything about God is always consistently, completely perfect. And Jesus is saying, if you want into the kingdom of God, you better do the same. You better be as perfect as God is perfect. And that is why it is so incredibly crushing when we read these verses at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to chapter 7. Two of the most misunderstood verses in the whole Bible. Read verse 13 and 14 with me. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The Sermon on the Mount is the gate. 
how many people make it through that gate? One. There is only one person in all of human history who has ever made it through the narrow gate. That's Jesus. That's what we studied last week. When he alone passed the temptation of Satan in the wilderness, when he kept the law, he's the only one on the narrow road. He's the only one making it through the narrow gate. All of us are on the broad path to destruction. Why? Because we have failed the law. We are not keeping the Sermon on the Mount. We have blown it. We're not getting in. This is incredibly bad news. Jesus is the only one to make it through the narrow gate. All the rest of us deserve destruction. I meant it when I said this sermon is incredibly bad news. It's really dark. Now, why would Jesus teach such a dark and depressing sermon? Very simple. To get us desperate for a Savior. You see, you know where this story in Matthew is headed, right? Where's Jesus going to go at the end of the book? He's going to go to the cross, and he's going to die to save you from your sins. That's the good news of salvation. But his audience was not ready for the good news of salvation. Why? Because they didn't think they needed to be saved. You're never going to look for a savior if you don't realize you need to be saved. Jesus had to get them lost before he could get them found. And so the Sermon on the Mount and so much of what Jesus taught in his ministry is just chock full of bad news because he's trying to get his self-righteous audience to understand they are not okay. He's trying to get them desperate for help. Reminds me, a while ago, I found a, a small mole on my back, and Julie said, hey, Blake, you should probably go to a dermatologist to get that checked out. But I don't like doctors, and it was small, and it seemed like no big deal, so I thought, what's the worst that could happen to me? So she said, well, why don't you find out? So I searched on Google, mole <laughs> skin cancer, and it haunts me to this day. The images that I saw, they were horrific. They were like out of a horror movie. They were so bad. What happens if you don't pay attention to a mole and it gets cancerous, and so what did I do the next day? I called the dermatologist. Well, I needed to be shown how bad it could get so that I would realize how much I needed help. That's a Sermon on the Mount. It is all the bad news. It is showing you how bad it will get if you try to make it through this life on your own. If you try to stand before God in your self-righteousness, through your works, through your church attendance, through your charitable giving, Jesus wants you to see how bad it will be. When you stand before God, the Sermon on the Mount is radically bad news designed to help us see how desperately we need a Savior. It is exactly the same as what Jesus does in another of his most famous passages his conversation with a guy we call the rich young ruler. It's found in Matthew 19, but I'm actually going to show you the parallel passage in Mark because it gives us a little more information in Mark. So I'll put it up on the screen. Let's talk about this. One of the most famous, but also one of the most misunderstood passages in the entire Bible. Jesus and the rich young ruler. Mark 10, verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that guy just gave away his perspective on eternal life, didn't he? By saying, what must I do? The question frames the answer. 
It's this man's self-righteous. He thinks, okay, I've done a lot. What else must I do, works must I do to earn my way into the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus will play that game. Okay, so you want to know what you have to do is you're going to earn your way into my kingdom. Okay, next couple of verses. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's given him a clue. You're, you're not as good as you think you are. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus does the same thing as the Sermon on the Mount. He takes him back to the law. Okay, you want to earn your way in? Obey the law. And he just lists a few sample commands. Well, how does a man respond to that? Next verse, he said to him, the man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Really? Honor your father and mother? You've done that since you're... I got two seven-year-olds, and I can promise you, they don't honor their father and mother most days. Kids don't. Well, even as adults, we fail. We, We fail to keep that law. What is going on here? Well, this man is like a Pharisee. He has reduced the whole of God's law to this list of commands. And remember, he's rich. He doesn't have to work. So he can spend all his time keeping the list. And all of that devotion to the list has led him to actually believe he has earned heaven. He actually believes he's self-righteous. He's succeeded. He's passing the test. But Jesus loves this guy too much to leave him in his self-righteousness. And so Jesus challenges him. Here's where it gets really bad. Mark, uh, verses, chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So what is Jesus doing here? Is he telling the man, well, if you go sell all your possessions, then you will earn your way into heaven? No, absolutely not. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is wise. He's trying to show this man he'll never earn his way into heaven. And so Jesus, in his supernatural wisdom, he sees through the man to where sin lives in him. This is the man's pet sin. He has made an idol of his wealth. And so Jesus pokes him right where he's made an idol of his wealth. He says, you got to give all of that up if you want to earn it. Now the man faces a choice. He can either fall on his knees before Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't do that. Please help me. Save me from my idolatry. Instead, what does he do? He walks away. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the tragedy of the rich young ruler. Not that he wasn't willing to sell his possessions, but that he walked away from the one and only man who could save him from his sin. So the point of this encounter with the rich young ruler is not that you earn your way to heaven by selling all your possessions or prove that you're worthy of heaven by selling all your possessions. The point is, if you're going to try to earn your way in, God will find that one place where sin lives in you and will show you that you don't measure up. I've heard so many Christians use this passage as, as, some, as some standard that you have to live up to. You've got to be willing to sell all your possessions or you're probably not saved. You've got to be willing to sell all your possessions and give to the poor or you're probably not a Christian. No, that's not at all what Jesus is doing here. This is not the gospel. This is the part before the gospel. This is the bad news where Jesus shows a man just how desperately he needs a savior. That's the application of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. If you want to earn it, 
if you're trying to get eternal life through what you do, you're never going to measure up. The only hope you have is to cling to Jesus, to humble yourself before Jesus. So Sermon on the Mount and the encounter with the rich young ruler, they're incredibly bad news. Hopefully at this point, I have convinced you that you are not going to earn your way into the kingdom of God. Doesn't matter that you're at church this morning. I'm glad you're here. You're not earning brownie points with God. Doesn't matter how much money you put in the offering plate. No brownie points with God. Doesn't matter how nice a person you are and how pure a life you live. No brownie points with God. You are not going to earn your way into heaven or into a relationship with God no matter what you do. That's the bad news of the Sermon on the Mount. It is so much worse than we could have imagined. But as bad as the bad news is, now it turns. Because you see, when you read the Sermon on the Mount in context, you realize the good news is actually better than you dared hope. And the good news was right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Turn back to chapter 5. Look at verse 3. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. I love this. The first thing out of his mouth is he gives the good news. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? Poor in spirit is the opposite of self-righteous. Poor in spirit are those who humble themselves before God and say, God, I'm not worthy. I can't earn it. God, I need help. Please save me, God. Jesus says they get in. If you're willing to humble yourself, you get in. You see, you, you know where this story is going. Jesus is going to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus, the one and only person to ever keep the Sermon on the Mount, he earned that righteousness for us and then died on the cross for all of our sins so that we can be saved as a gift the moment we humble ourselves before God and say, please, I am a sinner. I cannot earn it. Please save me through Jesus. And God gives you eternal life. Eternal life isn't something you earn. It's something you receive. It's for free. Jesus earned it for you. You just have to humble yourself and ask for it. Please, God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, your son, please save me for my sins because that is my only hope. The moment that you humble yourself before Jesus, you receive eternal life, what the law could never give you. So, many of you in this room have already received that good gift of eternal life. You've already trusted in Jesus. For those of you who haven't, the simplest way that I can illustrate what Jesus is saying, when I was in college, I got to go scuba diving in Cozumel, even though I had no money. I was poor. It was incredibly hard for me to, to work my way through college. I was having to work in the summers. But I, I got to go scuba diving in Cozumel, not because I earned it, but because I knew a guy. I knew a guy whose parents were wealthy. His parents were taking him to Cozumel, and so he invited me. Hey, you want to come with me to Cozumel? I got to go to Cozumel because I knew their son. That's how Christianity works. You don't earn your way to heaven. <laughs> You get to go to heaven because you know God's son. He's the only guy to ever be worthy of going. But he'll take you with him if you'll trust him. You just got to ask, Jesus, I want to go with you. I can't earn it. I lay my self-righteousness down. I lay down the fact that I came to church this morning. That's not earning anything with you. I trust you, Jesus. You're the only one to make it through the narrow gate. Please bring me with you. 
I trust that you made it through and then you died on the cross and rose from the dead so that I could come with you. Now, for many of us, we have trusted in Jesus. We have already heard that bad news and responded to the good news. So that leaves us asking, what is the Sermon on the Mount for us? Does it have anything to say to us? And the answer is yes. It absolutely has much to say to us if, and this is the key, as Christians, as those who've already trusted in Jesus, we need to understand for us, the Sermon on the Mount is a goal, not a standard. Let me try to help you understand that. So many people miss this. For believers, those who've already trusted in Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is not a line in the sand that you must stay on the good side of to either keep your salvation or prove that you're saved. I hear so many Christians and so many churches teach it that way. Want to know if you're saved? Read the Sermon on the Mount. If you're obeying it, you know. You're across the line in the sand. Oh, if you're not obeying the Sermon on the Mount, you're falling short here, 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 here. You're not even trying on that one. Well, you're probably on the other side of the line in the sand. Here's the problem with that idea. Any person, any believer, any church that tries to draw a line in the sand, there is only one line in the sand that God lets you draw. And where is that line? Perfection. So if the Sermon on the Mount is a line in the sand for believers so that we'll know we're saved or keep ourselves saved, guess what? We're all going to hell. Because none of us are going to be on the good side of the line in the sand if that's what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. But it's not. The Sermon on the, on the Mount is not a line in the sand, a, a standard that you have to live up to. No, it's a goal up here that you aim for in life, realizing in this life you're never going to get all the way to the goal, but you're going to try. You're going to push towards that goal. Why? Well, Jesus tells you at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to chapter 7, verse 24, very end of it. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to the wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. This is universally true. This is true for us as believers. The more that we obey Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, the more our lives will be founded on this rock that is stable and strong. So why should you obey the Sermon on the Mount? Not so you get to go to heaven. It has nothing to do with that. It's so that your life can be strong and stable and useful and honoring to God. Now, you're never going to perfectly do that in this life, but the more you follow Jesus' commands, the stronger your life becomes, the more stable your life becomes. So as believers, we're called to obey the Sermon on the Mount, not out of fear, not out of guilt, but out of joy. Jesus has basically given us the cliff notes on life. You want to know how to live a good, strong, stable life? Do this as best as you can. And the good news is, since we've trusted in Jesus after the cross and his resurrection, we get help. See, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. We're, we're New Testament age believers. God, the Spirit, comes to live inside of us. And as we seek to obey, he empowers our obedience so that more and more we can walk in the Sermon on the Mount. And so my application for you this week, if you've already trusted in Jesus, I don't want the Sermon on the Mount to be something that produces guilt or fear in you. Instead, I want it to inspire you. 
You can have a life that is stronger and more stable the more that you obey it. So I'm going to challenge you this week, sometime this week, read the whole Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew 5 through 7, three chapters. Read Matthew 5 through 7 and identify areas of your life where you're falling short. If you can't identify any areas of your life where you're falling short, you're a Pharisee. There's something there going on. Okay, so identify where you're falling short of Jesus' commands. Identify those. Choose one area, one command where you have not been living up to the standard that Jesus sets, this line of perfection, and pray that God through the Spirit will help you begin to grow in that area. Maybe it's an area that you weren't aware of. You didn't know that was sin. Maybe you knew it was sin, but yeah, it's not that big a deal, so you dismissed it. Or maybe you just given up. Man, there's no hope for me there. I want you to take that area of sin and commit it to God. Say, God, through your spirit, I believe that I can obey. Help me to obey. So pray that God would help you to grow in obedience in that area. And then I would encourage you to take one more step. Tell someone about that commitment you've made. So whether it's a spouse, a roommate, a friend, an accountability partner, tell them, hey, this is, this is a verse out of the Sermon on the Mount that convicted me and I've committed to the Lord that through his spirit, I want to do better here. Will you hold me accountable? Will you encourage me? The more that you grow to obey the Sermon on the Mount, the stronger and more stable your life will be as a believer. So the Sermon on the Mount, it's incredibly bad news to lead us to incredibly good news. I was talking to John Mark, who leads our, our worship here, about the Sermon on the Mount, because he and I have been studying through it some together, and I, I wanted to know, okay, so how was it to, to read it and study it in its original context? And here's what he said. He quoted Matthew five forty-eight: You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He said, for a long time in my Christian walk, this verse crushed me. The voices of self-deprecation and self-loathing echoed these words as shame and guilt held my sin ever before my eyes. I was daily reminded how far I was from this standard I could never keep. It was only after looking into Matthew more deeply that I took into account who Jesus was talking to and who I am. I realized that Jesus wanted the audience to see that they could never do enough to be righteous, but he could. When I start to feel like a failure, I now realize that his blood washes me white as snow no matter how deep I think the stain goes. I couldn't have said that better myself. See why I like John Mark. Guy understands the biblical text. He understands what Jesus is doing here. It's not about making you as a believer feel guilty. It's about showing you how much he has saved you from. So as the men go back to prepare communion, this is actually the exact message I want to preach to prepare us for communion. What are we doing in communion? We are reminding one another that we are sinners who deserve destruction. And apart from the death of Jesus, we would all be destroyed. But God in his love sent his son to take all of our sins and die in our place to set us free from the curse of the Sermon on the Mount so that we could have his righteousness and his eternal life as a free gift. And so what we're going to do this morning as communion comes forward, I I want you to spend some time thinking about two things. First of all, I want you to spend a moment in the bad news. Just let it wash over you. The bad news of the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to reflect on how far you fall short of God's line in the sand, which is perfection. Think about that. Confess that sin to God. Confess that need to God. And then I want you to say thank you to Jesus for obeying the Sermon on the Mount for you and then dying for your sins to wash you 
white as snow. So let's take a couple minutes to reflect on the bad news and the good news of the Sermon on the Mount. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, this morning we remember how far we have fallen short of your law, of your commands. You have the right. You are our king. You you can define what is true, what is good. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, you have shown us what it takes to live a perfect life, what it takes to earn heaven, to earn eternal life. And Lord Jesus, we all fall so far short and so we are so thankful that you, our King, the one and only person to ever satisfy the law, that you were willing to give us your righteousness as a gift and to take away our sins as a gift. You exchanged your righteousness for our sin and then you died on the cross to set us free from sin and death and shame and guilt. You rose from the dead, giving us hope of eternal life with you. We thank you for that. We pray for anyone in this room who hasn't yet received that gift of eternal life. Help them to get to the end of themselves, to that moment when they can recognize that they desperately need a Savior, and we pray that they would come in faith to you, Lord Jesus. For all of us who have come to you, we thank you that with you we get to be in God's family. We get to end heaven not because we've earned it, but because you bring us with you. We pray that that good news would set free any believers here this morning who have been living in fear or shame or guilt because they do not measure up to the Sermon on the Mount. We pray, God, that you would break the chains of that illegitimate fear and shame and help them to see that they are righteous because of you, Lord Jesus. We pray that they would see your Sermon on the Mount not as a line in the sand, but as a goal to inspire them to greater holiness, not so that they can merit or prove their righteousness, but so that they can live the lives of strength and stability that you've made possible. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our king and our sacrifice. We pray that our lives would please you because you are worthy of that. You are so merciful. We thank you that as great as our sins are, your mercy is greater. Thank you, Lord Jesus. This is all for you. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, if you'll stand, let's respond and worship. Mm-hmm.